0: You're listening to The Razor's Edge, an investing podcast. Your hosts are Akram's Razor, an investor, trader, short seller, and deep dive researcher for the last two decades plus, And me, Daniel Schwarzman, who's worked in investing media the last decade while managing my own stocks. We break down investing themes or ideas and speak with expert guests to get a wider understanding of a given topic. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance, or share this show with a friend. Reach us on Twitter at at Daniel Shortman or at Akram's Razor. You can subscribe to Akram's The Razor's Edge newsletter at the-razors-edge.ghost.io. The link is in Akram's Twitter profile. Here's our disclosure. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. We'll disclose any positions any stocks discussed in the introduction to a given episode. The semiconductor industry is in a period of transition. On the one hand, you know about the supply chain shortages, which have led many in and outside the industry to say that we've moved past the cyclical ups and downs of the industry towards a more secular long-term growth trend once we figure out all the issues, Semiconductors are used in everything, after all, from cars to phones to refrigerators, and so as we want more of everything, we'll want more semiconductors. Then there are the dynamics inside the industry. The once-untouchable leader, Intel, has given up its process advantage to Taiwan Semiconductor and its stock market leadership to NVIDIA and a handful of other names. The ARM-based chips, supported by TSM's foundry capabilities, have reopened the door to a number of startups as well, who are coming for Intel's or even NVIDIA's throne. The consolidation of the 2010s is giving way to fresh competition. And lastly, there's the emergence of artificial intelligence or AI, a cutting edge series of technologies that already affects our lives on a daily basis, and which is only going to increase in adoption, usage and relevance in the years to come. Those technologies and calculations require a great deal of computing power, however, and that computing power often comes at great energy costs, which places new demands on the semiconductor industry to square that circle. On the razor's edge, we're doing a little series on the future of compute, speaking with several executives and experts in the field to hear what the state of semiconductors, technology usage, and artificial intelligence from the hardware and software sides look like. We kick that off with this episode with Jeff Wittich, Chief Product Officer at Ampere. Wittich, like several of his Ampere colleagues, including CEO founder, Renee James, is an Intel veteran. Ampere's aim is to develop server chips designed explicitly for cloud usage using an ARM chip framework with the target of delivering much greater power efficiency. They're lined up against their old employers, Intel, and its x86 monopoly in the data center market. And it seems to be gaining traction. With the most recent evidence being reports, SoftBank is considering an investment in Ampere at an $8 billion valuation. We speak with Jeff about Ampere's journey, but why now is the time for Arm-based chips and servers, about how hyperscalers shape the industry's demands, the state of semiconductors, and of course, a bit on Intel and its challenges. For disclosures, I'm on Taiwan Semiconductor and Apple, and Ocram has no positions in these stocks. Jeff, welcome on to the Razor's Edge. It's good to have you on.
1: Thanks. Great to be here.
0: So let's just start right with the basics. What's the story with Ampere? What's your back? Like, what's the origin story? And just what, what is the company's mission and aim and position right now?
1: Sure. So Ampere is uh, about a four year old company. Uh, we were founded in 2017, founded by Renee James. Uh Renee James was previously president of Intel. She founded Ampere with a couple of other ex Intel execs, Rohit uh, Vidwans and Atik Bajwa. Each of them ran pretty large portions of Intel's engineering and architecture groups over the last decade or more. So a couple of you know 20, 30 year industry veterans. And so they founded Ampere based on a belief that there is something that's next in computing and that we're at that inflection point right now with the shift to the cloud where something new and novel needs to be done at the CPU level. There's been a lot of innovation at the software level. There's been a lot of innovation at the data center level to try and improve efficiency and and improve manageability, but very little has actually changed in the last 20 year about the actual CPU itself. And so this is a a great opportunity to go in and design something from the ground up that is high performance, higher performing than anything else in the market. And it's especially well-suited for cloud computing. And is it really able to address that that new paradigm of cloud native that didn't exist 10, 15, 20 years ago when the legacy processors were, were developed?
0: So when you talk about the, the cloud native, what does that actually mean in terms of what are your chips doing? You guys are making chips or designing chips. What are they differing from the legacy chips as far as how they help with the cloud?
1: Right. Yeah. So we're, we're designing and, and, and making chips. And if you look at what's really changed uh, with the cloud, the entire software model has changed. The development model has changed. Cloud native has resulted in uh, much more agile practices. A lot of software has been broken down into microservices so that it can th- get deployed in, uh, in small chunks all over the place. That's really good for a software developer because it means you can keep working on, on your code. Lots of people can be making changes. Every night things get checked in. Uh, you do a regression run. Code gets released really, really fast right now because of that modular approach. And so software then is being deployed very differently. It's being deployed as microservices in containers, which means that scalability is really important because now you're deploying a lot of containers across a lot of infrastructure. You're not just running one really big application on one big monolithic server. So scale is really, really important and being able to to scale out in a really elastic way, adjust up and down as, as user demand changes. And then also predictability is really important because you're going to have continually changing user demand. You're going to have continually changing workload profiles. The types of things people are running isn't the same from minute to minute. And as a cloud service provider, like a Oracle Cloud or a Microsoft Azure, you want to be able to deliver really, really consistent performance to your customers, not have them have to worry about what's what's my neighbor on the same server running. Or am I going to end up having my performance throttled when suddenly some big demand comes in, you know, in a certain part of the day? So that's what we really, we really focused on delivering a processor that was highest performance, that delivered that performance in a way that matches the way that cloud compute is actually deployed and and can scale out the way that the cloud needs to scale. And lastly, all of that has to be done in a really power efficient manner. You know, As an example here of uh, of how things that we're doing differs from, from the legacy approach, if you look at the growth in compute demand over the next five years in the cloud, it's going to be about 2x growth from now to 2025, you know, total amount of compute that's needed in, in the cloud. If you took the legacy approach using x86, that would mean that you would need to increase the number of servers you deployed by about 2.3x the amount of power you consumed is uh, about 2.9X. So huge, huge growth, even outpacing the real demands on on the cloud. If you take the approach that we have, which is a higher performance processor that's very, very power efficient, you could actually meet that demand while reducing your overall server count by about 20% and reducing power by 10%. And so this is, I think, a, a real game changer because we can't afford to see you know, total data center power consumption go up by almost 3x. It's, it's already roughly 2% of the world's power consumption. We need to ensure that that actually improves over, over time. So the power piece, the sustainability piece is kind of non-negotiable. We need to go and take a new approach to being power efficient with uh, and still meet compute needs. And then not having to increase your server count by, by over 2x, you know, that's really important too. Building a new data center is expensive. It takes time. There's a limited number of places where you can put new data centers, and it's just not—it's just not sustainable either to just keep building more and more servers. We need to build denser servers that can perform more, uh, you know, more compute versus building more and more servers over time. So that's been our goal. Like that's—that's that's sort of the problem statement that we're approaching: is how do we how do we go and address that massive demand in compute in a way that developers will love. In the way that providers will love to, to manage and deploy. And it solves those key problems around data center footprint expansion and increasing power demand for, for data centers. And so what we've done to actually make that happen, we've designed a, a CPU from the ground up. Our processors are, they're ARM based. So they use the ARM ISA as opposed to the x86 ISA. And that gives us a lot of flexibility to go and design what we, what we want. For instance, our next generation processor that will come out next year, uh, this is one that we actually totally from the ground up, we designed the core. The core is sort of the brains of the the CPU. So at Ampere, we designed the entire thing, the entire microarchitecture, and we were able to do so using some very new design approaches, some new approaches from an architectural perspective that would allow us to be higher performing, higher core count, which is really how the cloud deploys compute is in in cores as that next unit of compute. And it's extraordinarily power efficient in ways that you just can't do today with, uh, with an X86 processor.
2: Yeah, I was gonna ask you to, you know, for the investor layman to try to articulate ARM's DNA essentially coming from a mobile background and more synonymous with uh, you know, low power phones, uh, lightweight notebooks, form factors, the edge. And then thinking about the data center, which, Mm -hmm. I mean, has been almost exclusively dominated by x86 and in that sense, Intel, for the better part of, uh, you know, the last 20 years.
1: Yep. No, absolutely. So, yeah, you're right. When you look back at what ARM processors are really known for, it really is the mobile space. There's been something like hundreds of billions of ARM devices have been deployed since the emergence of, of ARM. So there's actually more ARM devices out there than, than any other ISA. But you're right, it's been, it's been typically in the mobile space, it's edge devices, things that needed to be very, very uh, power efficient. Now, in the data center space, power efficiency is is needed, but the performance profile is totally different. And taking a chip that works well on a mobile device and throwing it in a server, now that's a non-starter. And also, the scalability is different. In a mobile phone, you might want two cores, four cores, maybe in a laptop you want eight cores. Because you've got a single user, applications aren't written to be able to run across a hundred cores. But in the data center, you want hundreds of cores because it's not about one application running across hundreds of cores. It's about many, many applications running across that server. And maybe an application that's already been broken down into, you know, into microservices or, or smaller applications. So the arm isa provides a really nice base because it's really it's a, it's power efficient it doesn't have a lot of unnecessary instructions other features built in and so it's a nice simple starting point that creates kind of that foundation for building anything you want on top of it because one of the other things that x86 suffers from in addition to not being as power efficient there's a lot of legacy there there's a lot of stuff that that matters if you're trying to support every form of compute that's existed for the last 50 years. If instead you're trying to support things that matter in cloud computing and things that people have been using for the last 10 or so years, you can really strip out a lot of things that provide no value. Uh, and in fact, really just you know consume area, power, they create risk. It's more stuff to worry about that could break or represent a security vulnerability. So the, the ARM ISA is a great base. And that's why you've seen so much traction there in the last couple of years. It's licensable. So you can license the architecture. You can go and build whatever you want on it. That's not possible with x86. And so ARM's a great starting point from that perspective. The performance of the ARM architecture has increased a lot over the last 5 or 10 years. There's been uh, new instructions added, a lot of capabilities added. What you can build with the ARM ISA is dramatically different than 5 or 10 years ago. So. Five or 10 years ago, people were going and building what I'd call a you know, wimpy, wimpy core processors based on ARM that were really power efficient. They didn't meet the mark for performance. Totally different today. As an example, our Ampere Ultra processor, we, you know, we're able to deliver up more performance in that processor than Intel or AMD are able to deliver in, in their processors. The cores are as powerful. There's more of them. If this is These are high-performance processors. They're not just low-end, power-efficient processors today. They're both power-efficient and powerful. So the, so the ARM ice is a, it's a great base for that. The software ecosystem has matured a lot over the last 5 or 10 years. If you went back 5 or 10 years and looked at the software ecosystem, it justifiably, you could say that ARM wasn't ready for the data center. Today, with all the work that we've done at Ampere, that ARM has done, that ISVs and the open-source community have done, Virtually everything runs on ARM and and runs really, really well. I think the last thing, just to tie it back to the mobile devices in the edge space, I mean, one of the other big advantages with the ARM ISA itself is the fact that there's already a huge developer community out there that's been doing development for ARM-based devices for the the last decade or more. They've been writing Android apps. They've been been writing applications for all sorts of, of endpoint devices that sit all over your house. So there's a huge community of developers already. And then, so having that end-to-end play where you can write an application for a device at the edge, it's running on an ARM-based processor, and then you can go and test it in the cloud with an ARM-based processor like Ampere Ultra. Uh, You could even host a lot of the uh, elements of the application back in the cloud. Again, ARM-based processor. So you can do everything natively without having to actually move across you know different architectures between x86 and, and ARM. So that, that's that been really valuable as well. I think a lot of the early adopters have have come at it from that perspective.
0: What took it till you kind of mentioned the software is getting there? What Why has this approach not been tried before? Is it just sort of a matter of the increase in cloud compute combined with the more mature ARM ecosystem? Or like, why is the time now for something like this?
1: Right. I, I would say that, you know the the emergence of the cloud over the last 10 or 15 years is really the catalyst for this cuz a new compute model that needs a new piece of hardware arguably this should have happened 10 years ago but it's really really difficult for the incumbents to disrupt themselves and to go and and build something completely new that by you know inherently is going to cannibalize their existing business so you needed to see a disruptor like a ampere come in to actually do this. Now, a lot of people tried to do this over the last decade or so, but I think there's three key factors that have contributed to this being successful now when it wasn't five or 10 years ago. One is that the ARMICE itself has matured. So the performance that you can get out of an ARM-based processor is much, much higher than it was 10 years ago. And you know, credit to ARM for going and, and really focusing on the infrastructure space and making those improvements to the ISA. So the ISA is ready. So now someone like Ampere really can go and build a design based on it from the ground up that, that is high performance. The second thing is the software ecosystem. It took time and investment for it to mature. You needed to get all of the major OSs running, all of the hypervisors, the management software that people use in the cloud and all the applications. And you know whether it was work that was done by ARM, a lot of our predecessors who were building ARM based server processors, ourselves, AWS, Apple now with M1. There's a lot of momentum right now around developing and continuing to develop new applications around the ARM ecosystem. Then I'll say the third thing that's been a big factor has been access to leading process technology. So having TSMC with a process leadership lead versus Intel has been a key factor. We are fabulous. We design our products. We send them to TSMC to be fabricated. And being able to be on a leading process node, get the capacity we need, that's been a major, major factor. So their, their success has definitely contributed. And I think that's one reason why you see so many hardware startups popping up now, because it's now possible to build a leading edge product. Whereas, you know, years ago, you would have had limited options and and you would have had an inherent disadvantage relative to
2: Intel from the start. That's an interesting point, right? I don't think the only people think about that. So when you think about Intel in the data center and essentially a monopolistic position for the last decade, cracking someone who has you know 95% plus market share when you're getting the performance uplift that you were getting from their integrated, you know, their IDM model of uh, being a integrated uh, leader on the Moore's law end, like how much does that also factor in, right? Like if you weren't getting the performance, I think, because you're kind of making the point that TSM passing them has played a factor, but it's also like the incumbent was there and, you know, you got one seller of merchant Silicon cloud is building out. You're buying from them the early days for them to really dedicate engineering resources. They're not even thinking about that and. You kind of hit this wall even before they fell behind in in process tech. But do you think a, p- a big part of that was you know Intel also getting a little bit? I mean, I know that you're a former employer, but getting fat on uh, on the margin side because I mean, like if you look at if you look at like the 2000 whatever 16 to like 19 cycle, you know, but the average ASP uh, on the server side essentially doubled, right? Mm-hmm. And that data center business. Because a lot of people have criticized Intel on on foregoing mobile and and many things they did. But I mean, was there anything better than the data center business for the last decade?
1: Yeah, I, I think you hit on something. I think, I mean, there is this is a classic innovators dilemma where you know the incumbent had great share in the data center space. You know, the data center was a real cash cow from a margin perspective. There was no choice in that space. If I go back you know, five plus years ago, you know, before AMD released Epic, there was really no choice in the data center space. And so in that type of an environment, it, it is pretty hard to disrupt yourself when you've got 99% market share, really healthy gross margins, going out and, and building a new product line meant to actually replace you know, your current Xeon cash cow. That's a hard choice to make. So I don't, I don't think anyone missed it. I think everyone was keenly aware that the uh, the landscape was changing and that cloud computing did require something new, but but Xeon was good enough. And so it's hard to decide when to pull the trigger to go and, and actually build something, build something new. So it created a big opportunity for someone like an Ampere to come in and and disrupt things. And this is sort of when it happens, right? Is when when things are kind of at their rosiest and most profitable that that's, that's prime time for a disruptor to come in and take advantage of that opportunity. Is there anything you think that,
2: I mean, I've been looking at the data and I mean, I don't know if the audience is, is where, but just to throw out some of the numbers. So if you look at the data center market pre COVID, right. I mean, and you tell me if I'm, I'm in the in the right ballpark, but I had, I'd essentially Intel x86 at, at like, let's call it 92, 93% share and Intel's share in x86, you know, north of 95%. And that was, let's call it, I don't know what, two and a half years ago. Now I'm looking at some data on AWS Graviton, right? in EC2. And they're saying that, you know, in the last year, half of their new instances are Graviton powered. Something like I think 50%. Yeah.
1: yeah I think that right. is that the that's the data from Lifter. Yep. 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 That matches what I've seen as well. So
2: you've gone from, from ARM essentially being let's call it like a you know a, a 1% or less presence in the data center in and let's call it uh you know less than you know five percent at a company like AWS to maybe 15% in 18 months.
1: Yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I I would agree. That's the type of growth that we're that we're talking about there, and so it's ripe for that to happen now across the you know the rest of the cloud service provider space as well. You know, and we're starting to see that same thing with our with our customers. You know, Oracle Cloud has Ampere Ultra deployed. Microsoft Azure has has talked about what they've been working on with us, and uh, and, and we'll see some interesting things there. So we're going to keep seeing that spread across the the cloud service provider space. So you think that's how
2: it plays out, right? The super Mm -hmm. eight essentially are the the quickest adopters. By the way, I mean, since since you have the background, I mean, for for the listeners, can you talk to like what, like these top eight cloud firms, like what percentage of servers are they buying roughly speaking in a given year?
1: Right. Yeah. They are buying roughly 60% of the servers in the cloud. In any given year, and so if you looked at the overall data center market, that means that something like roughly 35 percent of all servers anywhere for any application, high performance computing, enterprise cloud, networking applications are actually going to you know, one of those eight cloud service providers. So you're talking these are million plus CPUs per year, and in many cases, million plus servers a year for a for each of those players are very, very big players in the market.
2: So they're in a very clear position to drive the roadmap in this direction. I mean, there's really, I mean, if you're on the x86 end there, I mean, there's not much you can do if they're making these decisions.
1: Yeah. They're, they're incredibly influential in this market. They, they do drive the ecosystem. They have a lot of control over every single part of their environment, like everything from, They build their own data centers, they operate their own data centers, they build their own racks of servers in specific ways that are suited for them, the way they cool them, the way that they deploy them, they build their own servers, so they design their own boards that again are well suited for the way they want to manage them. They own a lot of times a big portion of the software stack. So they have a lot of influence in being able to drive the market where they want whether it's on the hardware side, the software side. And so, yeah, where they move the market likely is, uh, is going to follow. And do you think that this is something that, I mean,
2: if like you're thinking, you know, over the next five years, like what, what, what type of share do you think uh, Arm can get in the data center?
1: I, I think in the next five years, I think that, I, I think that the sky's a limit to be honest. You know, if you look back, Let's say 20, 25 years ago. So what, like mid to late 90s, the data center space was dominated by uh, a bunch of the old uh, old risk processors. So MIPS and DEC and, and Spark they controlled the data center, and, and X86 was was nowhere to be seen. Right, X86 was viewed as a, as a toy. Right, it was Spark that did the uh, the ad where they it was a picture of a, a cereal box and an X86 processors were the were the toy in the cereal box. So that X86 was sort of a joke in the data center space back then, but over the course of, of five years with the rise of uh, open source operating systems like Linux and uh, sort of the disaggregation of the, of the industry, you quickly saw a complete shift over to X86 until by the time you got into the you know, mid-2000s, virtually every server in the data center outside of a few legacy mainframes. was was x86. And those types of transitions do happen, you know, every 20, 25 years in this space. We went from mainframes to PC's mini computers, a client server model. Now we're into a new cloud model. And and so I think that, you know, that type of of shift is very much possible to see. If it's not a complete shift, at least it's going to be a very, very significant shift over to ARM-based server processors, just because it's the only way you're going to get to the type of performance, scalability, power efficiency that's needed in, uh, in the cloud and the growth in the cloud is not slowing down. So X86 is essentially a shrinking TAM narrative going forward. I, I would say, yes, I would say it is a, it is a shrinking TAM narrative as we go forward. And with,
2: and, and with now for, I mean, for, I mean, we, do, we we get occasional questions about, you know, Intel stock looking very cheap no real opinion either way it definitely does look cheap uh, compared to peers but you have a shrinking TAM narrative and then you've got two companies kind of one that's become suddenly more competitive has a performance advantage right now competing against them so mm-hmm. do you think that as that market gets more competitive like the value proposition can can improve somewhat for for cloud to you know to slow the transition
1: uh, in terms of can the value prop for, for Intel processors. Yeah, I mean, let's say
2: it. Intel launches, you know, a more aggressive price war yeah. against AMD.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that um I'm not sure it's about price at this point. I mean, price always matters, but when we're talking about the the types of performance deficits that Intel has today, I'm not sure price makes up for it. It's a it's a tool. Certainly they're using it. But I think inherently what will need to happen is a new breed of much more competitive processors that that is well suited for this space will need to, to emerge. And I mean, don't count Intel out. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of smart people there. They're the people that built the processors that are running the cloud today. Uh, a lot of us, the leadership team at Ampere are from there. And so, you know, I, we're certainly vigilant. I, I wouldn't count them out by, by any means, but I, but I think that what we're doing at, at Ampere is, is exceptionally differentiated and I like where we're headed. Could the Intel models, shift somewhat to be, you know, to the point where
2: they're, they're making ARM chips from a foundry business standpoint for someone like an Ampere
1: down the road? Hard to say. I mean, I would say anything's possible. Supply chain is critically important these days. And, uh, you know, having, having a lot of diverse options within the supply chain is, is always a good thing. And that'll certainly be appealing to a lot of people to have those types of options, especially if Intel were able to get much more competitive on, on the presence technology front and and catch up with TSMC. So from an investor standpoint,
2: I think the challenge, and I think, I mean, you guys are still a private company when they look at the space and they want to play this, you know, this theme in computing and uh, the growth of cloud and so on and so forth, their choices really have been limited. Right. And from an arm standpoint, there really isn't a direct way to play it. Right. I mean, arms private and, you know, even there, probably not the most efficient way to play it. Whether or not NVIDIA acquires it, you've got this kind of, you know, back and forth between Intel and AMD. But here we are talking about a potentially a shrinking TAM. Do you see this market proliferating with, I mean, like, I mean, I'm looking at recently, I mean, I think Mar- Mar- Marvell was, was a competitor here with Thunderbolt. And, and they seem to have shut that down or, or exited. Mm-hmm. And I know Qualcomm acquired, what was their name? Nuvia? But they don't seem to be doing much there. So you guys seem to be, I mean, as far as from my research, the only player who's developed, uh, you know, traction in this space, in the the data center, as an independent merchant silicon company. Like everything else you can really look at is what's going on, like internal design teams. Mm -hmm. And AWS is, is, I guess, the furthest along there without question. And then it just becomes like, you know, What's like uh, if you know when a cloud provider? I mean, you know, not to talk specific customers, approaches you and what they're thinking is, I mean, are they buying into a commitment of a roadmap of of several, like you know, for the next five years? Right. They are. They because are because yeah, this, this to not to do be. this themselves.
1: Yeah, I mean, this this is it's always a long term conversation. You know, we start with the current product, and certainly the current product has to be leadership, but it always is about the the three to five year roadmap. Because you're right, if they're buying into a new approach, that's not a, that's not a short-term, you know, one-generation decision. They, they're buying into a new approach that is, you know, going to carry them forward for 5, 10, you know, 15, 20 years. So big decision. But then when, you know, when the shift starts to happen, it, it starts to really pick up steam. And I think that's, that's one key thing, right, is we're at really that, inflection point where things are starting to pick up. I mean, we've had hype about this for 10 years and, and there was never critical mass. The ecosystem never really got big enough. You never had big market makers actually go and being serious about this. And, and you do, you do now. Again, whether it's AWS, whether it's Oracle, whether it's some of the other ones you're going to hear about, whether it's Apple with the M1, and there's ARM-based processors everywhere now. And I think, you know, now we're at that tipping point where it's, it's starting to become it's starting to become mainstream. Is part of this essentially that these companies have gotten so big on the cloud
2: end and, you know, you're like citing Apple as an example that it's really made more sense for them to invest on their own and, you know, in optimizing to their own workloads. When before, I mean, like, is, is this the, a theme in computing Getting fragmented, you know, we haven't gotten yet into the you know machine learning, deep learning element, and like that's like part of the focus of this this series is kind of the future of computing, and it seems like that we you know we went through this cycle where you had a standardized process maker and and you built your applications toward it, and now it's like we're, we we're constrained to almost target the type of architecture slash you know cores systems system building towards the workloads. I mean, is that kind of, I mean, have we, have we seen kind of a flip here where you have such concentrated power in several places where it's like, you know what, like I'm, I can get better performance and savings, you know, on top of that out of customizing to my own workloads. Cause I'm such, such a dominant player in the market.
1: Yeah, I think, I think yes and no. I think that that's, what's really been a big contributor to the rise of so many accelerators a lot of the AI accelerators, maybe some of the accelerators that are more focused at uh, data processing as well, packet processing acceleration, crypto encryption, those types of things. I think that the scale of the cloud has has definitely enabled that to become a, a reality because those aren't all necessarily large workloads from a from a TAM perspective. If you look at something like AI training. Which is largely you know dominated by AI accelerators today, it it only makes up a, a very, very small percentage of the overall cloud oh, inference is like like ten times the yeah, inferencing is yeah, inferencing is is huge volume running everywhere. Training is small volume running in in fewer places. But since there are such large players that are running large training clusters, building big models, they are able to then take advantage of a more specialized approach to something like AI training. And it makes sense for them economically to go and invest in a unique piece of hardware, new unique silicon, unique server to go and to do that. So it has definitely given rise to those types of, of, of specialized pieces of hardware. I would say in general though, when you look at the general purpose computing in the cloud, which is really, you know, what we've built Ampere Ultra for. Our Ampere processors are meant to run the, the whole spectrum of workloads that run in the cloud. What, what differentiates us is that we build a processor that's really, really good for cloud infrastructure and really any workload, a cloud infrastructure. We didn't build a processor that's really good at one specific workload. We built it for the infrastructure approach. And, and so I think that um, in that space, having a, you know, a general purpose, broad market CPU available is a is a huge advantage, where there's little advantage at that point to becoming super specialized and, and building a processor that is that is that that unique for for a specific customer. It becomes a bit of a vanity thing, and the the actual customization is pretty pretty minimal at that point. It becomes. You know, infrastructure management So what you're is saying is from a workload plan. standpoint if I was to like take amper
2: Ultra and you know swap it, it out with graviton like you can do the same thing essentially speaking
1: yeah we'll, we'll do it better but you can do the same things <laughs> exactly and there's a lot of value there right like, oh, when so you're that's a key like point perfect- though right like,
2: because yeah. that, like you don't want like to, to get the sense that if you're a merchant silicon maker and you can you know amortize your development I mean it goes back to the same thing of you know x86 but if you can amortize that development across multiple cloud customers obviously that becomes advantageous
1: it does because this is an expensive business you know you have to get to scale fairly quickly it, it's expensive from a uh, you know a, a manufacturing and supply chain perspective it's expensive from a talent and people perspective you know you can't build a a world class microprocessor with 50 people in a garage it, it requires you know, a much, much bigger team to build a processor that has tens of billions of transistors in it. And it's expensive from a time perspective as well. This isn't software as much as I would love for us to be able to uh, go and release a new version of our CPU every night on some nightly build. You know, there's, uh, there's inherent time required to go and, and, you know, manufacture the physical device and build it. So no, I, I think that you do need to get to scale, meaning, you know, a million plus processors before this, before this makes sense. So when you look at the market, the overall data center market, it doesn't make sense that there would ever be 15, 20 different people going and building processors. You just can't get to that type of of scale for for your general purpose, you know, workhorse processor that's gonna be running your cloud. Now, Now that can be totally different in the accelerator space. We're talking about AI training, there it can make sense because the approach that people are taking to that and the nature of the workload is such that you get vastly different types of architectures with very different attributes. It makes complete sense in the data center space. When you're talking about general purpose, compute scale, a little bit of homogeneity, ease of adoption, you know, these things, these things matter a lot. And like how how much of a mode do you think from, from an x86 standpoint is, you know,
2: everything that's legacy like that's that's still running on it how does it kind of protect their position to try to to respond
1: i think there's um there's two aspects to that there's the there's a technical aspect to it and then there's sort of the business and marketing aspect to it i think from a technical perspective the moat isn't that wide or deep at this point again five or ten years ago my answer would have been different there was a lot of um work that was needed for people to go and port over to to ARM-based processors, but much less so now, both because workloads and applications have become so abstracted from the hardware. The hardware, in many cases, just doesn't even matter at all to the end user. And for those times when it does matter, the ecosystem's there. So I think from a technical perspective, the moat isn't really that important. From a marketing and business perspective, surely it's... uh, it is very, very important being able to use supply chain, being able to use, you know, incumbency. There's a lot of tools at your disposal from that perspective, from the x86 space, but that's not a technical challenge. That's more of a business tactics. Okay. And when you think
2: about like, we, we, we touched a little bit on ML, DL, and uh, the inference training difference. And I mean, you know, Sapphire Rapids is supposed to ship and, Early next year, and they're talking about you know how they've added uh, i think it's called a m x or I don't, I don't know exactly mm-hmm. what the the uh, abbreviation is, but essentially you know a matrix multiply unit on the chip to increase performance for certain workloads qualm uh, qualcomm has uh you know an inference accelerator coming out there's this kind of focus here where uh, and Nvidia has aspirations with you know their cpu and 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 marrying it to uh their accelerators, their ARM CPU, that's supposed to be out in 2023 or 2024. Like, do these still have to merge from a general purpose processing sense in the cloud? Like, when, when Amazon, I mean, I don't understand the, the technicalities of this as well as someone who's uh, focused on uh, on the back end. But when Amazon talks about moving, like, let's say uh, Alexa, right, off of mm-hmm. uh, off of GPUs to Inferentia, what's the CPU's role in that process?
1: Yeah, so I think if you look at the AI market, we kind of mentioned it earlier. Look at it as you got training on one side and you've got inference on the other side. You know, I think for those listeners that aren't as familiar with it, the difference is you know, training is when you go and you take a big data set and you build an AI model. And, and sometimes that happens just one time. You might rebuild it, reoptimize it every once in a while based on new data, um, but that's one really big task that occurs maybe just one time. And you might be building lots and lots of models. So it's a lot of aggregate work, but it's not a real-time task and training. Like we mentioned earlier, it's sort of the sexy piece of AI. Everyone talks a lot about it about the performance of it, but it's a relatively low percentage of the overall market, but people get excited about it because it was the big bottleneck for years in, in AI really taking off. So having enough compute to build models in a Reasonable amount of time was really, really important. And then on the other side, you have inference, and inference is actually running the models and producing results. So this is then, you know, a traffic camera going and actually reading a license plate, or identifying a cat from a dog with image classification or translating a phrase. That's inferencing. So that's running the model and getting real results. And that's uh, a much larger volume, because you know, train a model once run it millions or billions of times. It's a smaller, shorter task. And it's also one that is very pervasive and mixed in with a lot of other workloads. So while training might happen in a specific cluster where all you're doing is AI training, inferencing is gonna happen, it's gonna be sitting right next to your database, right next to your you know, web front end. You're just, it's just one of the things that you do as, as part of an overall service, like an Alexa is, is run inferencing. And so as such, there's very different approaches To training versus inferencing. And so, again, training kind of lends itself to build a big, specialized cluster so that you could push through model building as fast as possible. And you're not really running much else in it because it's not really a real time workload. Inferencing, though, is a real time workload. And what matters there, uh, first and foremost, is latency first. You want to get results really, really fast. And then you want to produce as many results as possible once you hit the latency that you you desire. And so as such, it requires a different approach because it's much more distributed. You might want to run inferencing closer to where the user is to remove latency. You're probably running five or six different workloads, if not many, many more on the same machine. So it's not going to be as specialized. And so for the most part, while AI training makes sense in a specialized cluster, AI inferencing makes more sense in a more general purpose type of compute and it makes a lot more sense to even run on just a CPU versus offloading it to some sort of accelerator because once you've offloaded it you've now added complexity cost to the solution and you've also added latency because you still need to send a lot of data out over to the accelerator process it send it back into the CPU and then and then the results to the to the user and so while you'll see people going and developing novel types of inference accelerators and, and trying to come up with new approaches, I see that as sort of niche for the inferencing space. If you were doing kind of offlo- offline batch processing of, of inferencing, so going and maybe doing a bunch of image classification where it didn't really matter if the results were ready in an hour or two days, the accelerator approach can make, can make sense if you have enough scale and that job's big enough. For most other people, running on a CPU makes a lot of sense. It's easiest to deploy. It's going to be lowest latency and it's just much more, much more versatile.
2: So when you think of like when Google gives you their TPU story of, you know, Mm -hmm. we did the math. And if you, you know, we're talking to Google voice and making these requests, you know, for this natural language translation algorithm or whatever our server costs, were going to go up this much, right? We would have to build up this much capacity. So we, we developed this, you know, matrix multiply unit and it sticks in nicely you know right next to the cpu in our servers and then when yeah. alexa is talking about this uh, when amazon's talking about this with Inferentia and i mean alexa's not everything is happening alexa is happening in the is in the data center right like it's not on yeah. the device so it's yeah. not at the edge so when you think about those the, like and, and and they talk about i mean these are obviously huge massive products with you know billions of end users essentially is that something that is a direction that like you know for example for you guys uh, from from a general processing standpoint in the cloud like it is is the inferencing optimization that is going on in the like when i when when intel talks about we're getting eight times performance by adding this to sapphire rapids and we stick in these cpus is that actually something that would negate the need to have like a tpu in place and you've you've kind of provided uh because because these this is where the volume is, right? So right.
1: right. It it would. And this is where to and this is where we're focused. We're focused on going and optimizing our CPU for, for inferencing because that's where the volume is. And that's where it makes sense for somebody to continue to run on, on a CPU. And so you're right, like that general approach of going and adding things to the CPU that improve inferencing performance, it negates the need for that type of an accelerator. Now, there's a lot of different approaches to this. And what I think is key to what we're doing at at AMP here and how we're approaching this is every decision we make around design is with general purpose compute in mind and with efficiency and scalability in mind. So we're not going to go and add really, really complex accelerators into our processor that are only used a small percentage of the time that are going to actually slow down the performance of all other tasks on the processor. Uh, But I think we've found a really sweet spot where the blocks that we have within our processors that are being used for for inferencing are are really good. They are very high performance. They are very power efficient. They scale really well. So our whole approach of scaling out to more and more cores to provide more general purpose compute, it works in this space too. So uh, our scaling works and inferencing, whereas we're scaling to more and more cores and we have more and more of these blocks, it's scaling really, really well and, and really, really efficiently. Um, and I, what I did want to mention in this space as well is there is a big uh, there is a big optimization and software investment required. We actually acquired a company about two months ago called OnSpect. OnSpecta has a piece of software that's basically a library that enhances the underlying hardware performance based on... Being able to optimize for different types of data, um, different types of mo- AI, AI models that are running, different types of frameworks, and we had been working with them for about a year. And we were getting really, really good results. Our out-of-the-box performance for our CPU for inferencing was going up by three, four X, or even more so when running is like a, a compiler. Yeah, basically, it's uh, yeah, it's a library that gets called. The end user doesn't have to worry about it at all. It just gets called, and the code is just optimized. And run faster and that some of the data is, is better organized and well optimized, such that end user doesn't care, but everything is uh, organized and compiled much better for the underlying hardware. And so with the addition of something like this, yeah,'re we're beating, we're beating Intel, we're beating AMD at inference performance, and we're also beating we're, we're beating dedicated GPUs for inferencing as well. And, and doing so in a much, much smaller cost footprint, much, much smaller power footprint. And our processor, when you're not running inferencing, you can run anything on it. Whereas if you've got some sort of inference-specific accelerator, it's, uh, it's sort of useless when you're running other tasks on, uh, on the machine. It's just wasted cost, wasted power, wasted space. Well, that's fantastic news. All right, so I guess
2: the next question here to take this more in the direction of, of Ampere is like, what, like, what, what's the secret sauce here, and why? You know, why did Marvel, like a competitive landscape right now, for most people looking at this space? I mean, one day, hopefully, you guys will be a public company that the listeners can invest in. And when you're thinking about the, you know, these narratives, if this is where things are heading, and like the
1: timing is is just right why have others thrown in the towel right i think that there's a, there's a, there are a, a couple of key factors there the timing is just right i i mentioned earlier kind of those three factors the underlying architecture performance the ecosystem the the manufacturing process you know we are right now at a place where they have finally all converged and you can get leadership in all of those so timing's important i think the second thing is that The market is ready for it, and the right use case is there with the cloud. So, the cloud actually has this demand for scalability and and power efficiency. And it's become increasingly clear that the legacy approach is not providing the gains that are needed. So, then people are running into the the scaling problem. So, kind of, it's the right market opportunity because it's very clear what the problem statement is and, and how it needs to get addressed. In terms of Ampere specifically then, so I think it's, you know, it's the right time, it's the right market, customers want it. In terms of what we're doing that that makes us different and uh, better able to succeed, you know, I think that having a leadership team that did this at Intel for many decades is important. This is a complex market. Our customers are some of the biggest companies in the world. These are trillion-dollar companies in many cases. They have very specific needs, they're very demanding. We've worked with them in the past and we understand what's required in order to deliver this type of complex processor at scale to these customers. So I think that's key is having a team that knows how to do this and you know, amongst our- uh, yeah, I don't think we got processors. into what your, what your background at Intel was. Yeah, I was at Intel for 15 years did a variety of things starting in some very technical engineering roles, ran some engineering teams around server development and then I spent the last couple of years at Intel running the cloud service provider business. So I was running the portion of the data center business that was focused on selling into the cloud and developing the the roadmap and the processors really and the overall business strategy around how to sell to uh, to the cloud. So it's uh, yes, the market kind, is definitely kind, my wheelhouse. Kind, yeah. <laughs> kind of in your wheelhouse. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I, I've, I've seen this, this point coming, I, you know, I, I've seen what customers have been asking for where their unmet needs are. And so very, very clear picture of, of how we need to go and address this. I mean, it must um, be, be very interesting for
2: you to see yeah. how it's, how it's evolved.
1: No, it, it, it definitely, it definitely has been really cool to actually get out there and, have products in market now that do the types of things that I wished that I would have had you know five years ago the other thing I just want to say though is from an ampere perspective so it's you know knowing how to scale uh, it's also we were able to come in and really rearchitect the way that we design and so being a new company and having very very experienced people that have done design and architecture you know at scale large companies we were able to rethink things. We are much more agile. Our development cycle is way shorter, you know, than the companies that we that we came from. We've been able to do a lot more things in the pre-silicon phase, uh, a lot of emulation, so you simulate the pro, the part uh, extensively before you ever even go into production and start to produce samples. That's a huge advantage because it takes many many months to get samples back whereas we can run many many rounds of simulations every single day and and get results really really fast so we've just taken a very different approach to how we how we design that's much faster that allows us to bring products that are much healthier to market right away and allows us to be much more responsive to to customers changing demands because our design cycle is faster so we can get new features in fast faster and we can adapt much more faster and we're not we're not tied to any kind of uh Legacy, uh, legacy requirements we're going to keep building what's best for cloud all right so with that in mind
2: are you guys you know to scale a business at this that at, at like this to get to this type of volume are you worried about the supply environment I mean I is this something that, that factors into like is this a constraint for competition in this space
1: I would say it's a it's definitely something that we're concerned with every single day but this is one of the other reasons why having a a seasoned team that has really, has actually managed this type of thing in the past, at much bigger scale than we're even at today is really, really critical because for, you know, for a company of our size, we were already planning, you know, multiple years ahead from a supply chain perspective. So when a lot of these constraints started to become public, you know, constraints around wafer capacity or substrates or even now server, component, motherboard components, stuff that no one ever really used to care about. You know, we had already been considering this as a key risk factor, you know, for a couple of years and had already built out the long-term agreements around supply. We've got some pretty sophisticated capacity planning in place. So, you know, I think while it's certainly a concern and it's something that we work on every single day and have an entire strategy around, it's something that we've been able to navigate really, really well. Based on our past but you're experience. essentially viewing that as kind of a competitive advantage for you guys. We are. yeah, supply chain is absolutely a competitive advantage. I don't see the current supply chain constraints becoming significantly better in the next year or two. I don't think this is a cyclical pattern. this is this is actually a lot of pent-up You don't think demand. we can
2: have a six, a cyclical bust in the space?
1: I think that there's there is large underlying demand for compute growth. And I don't see that. I don't see that waning. Like a digestion period.
2: I mean, there's been
1: there insane be di- capex. Well, I think that you you see, if you looked at it from a customer by customer perspective, there are certainly these digestion cycles where you've got a big build out for a couple of quarters and then maybe a slowdown as you digest deploy and then it, it repeats again. But the that's really customer by customer. If you overlay it, a, a lot of the, the cyclical nature starts to disappear in this space. And, and I think that we do just have, there's a macro strong growth story in this space that's, that's not going to uh, go away anytime soon. And I think you know, the pandemic has, has maybe even accelerated this where it has put a lot of stress on a lot of the compute resources around the world. And so a lot of the things that actually might be something that would push a, you know, a bust cycle in another industry might actually result in a boom cycle in this space. So I, I don't see any, any key trigger for some sort of reduction in overall compute demand anytime soon. Because that's definitely a, a major focus
2: from an investor standpoint. I mean, mm-hmm. there was like, you know, we've talked about this for, with respect to, I mean, NVIDIA and. And other names, but, you know, let's say crypto mining slows down, Ethereum goes proof of stake, uh, a slowdown in in, uh, GPU demand, uh, you're through a refresh cycle for them. And let's say you hit a bit of a slowdown in e-commerce, you know, wages are up and these big public cloud companies like, you know, in China on the the other end have been getting cracked down on and everybody just takes a bit of a pause, right? Mm-hmm. And then that pause becomes. I mean, you've been in the space for clearly a very long time. You fast forward a year later, and you're like, yeah. I mean, COVID did pull a lot forward, and uh, uh, this feels like a bust. But you know, it's like a six month readjustment. Because I mean, Gavin Baker from Atreides Management had had a good interview recently where he got into uh, the difference between an inventory cycle and a capacity cycle, mm-hmm. and that we're kind of that like we're we're in this inventory cycle right now that kind of clouds the path to you know. The broader theme, which is the capacity cycle, we've been kind of we've been focusing on in this in this conversation. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to take like so you don't really see something in, you know on the immediate horizon that could cause kind of a surprise over, over Hank.
1: Not not from what I'm seeing out there right now. Now I think you mentioned some some things that in spaces in the industry could be a factor. I mean there could be some some factors that would impact gpus for instance but when i'm looking at just general purpose compute there it's it's a bit insulated from it because of the wide variety of, uh, of usages applications industries it it really cuts across i
2: mean the server market didn't really grow for 20 years right i mean virtualization and moore's law did a pretty good job if you go back to the the expectations from you know 2001 for what mm-hmm. the size of the market would be, I think we didn't hit it till 2017, 2018, or just at a nominal revenue standpoint. So there was a lot that kept a lid on it that kind of, you know, is no longer there.
1: Yeah, I think when I think especially like uh, my lens is mostly through the uh, you know, through the cloud and edge computing lens, and so I think when I look at that space, I see continued strong growth for a while without a lot of factors that are going to have would uh, would prevent some sort of actual shrinkage there. Certainly you'll see shifts in other parts of the market as people migrate more to the cloud. But, but I think you know overall, depending on who you talk to, you know, there's something like 2X growth over the next five years in this space. And then there's a lot of key you know, fundamental factors that, that are underlying them. All right, well, that's good. I'm sure that'll make a lot of people happy.
2: I guess, uh, Daniel, any other questions? Maybe if I put you on the spot on a couple investor-based questions, since nobody can really buy a pure play company like Amper yet. I mean, do you guys care? Like, do you have plans to IPO? Is that, an, is that a roadmap?
1: Uh, nothing I can talk about. Okay. Uh, no, nothing I can talk about right now. All right. Uh, so next uh, question uh, then, uh, with that in
2: mind, and if you were to put your, you know, if you were to step outside of uh your role and put your public market investor hat on and you had to invest in the chip space, I mean what like would you be looking at like foundry makers, EDA design tools, if everybody's designing you chips? Uh, like what's like what do you think secular theme right now if I can't go out and, and buy an amper? But yeah. I wanna I wanna play that that thinking. Yeah.
1: Well, I think you know. I'll leave the the stock picking to to you guys. I think that's your uh, <laughs> that that's your space of expertise. But I think that, um, like I said, I think that the overall demand in a lot of general purpose forms of compute, and then the supply chain that's required to to back that, you know, I I see from my point in the market, I I see that being very very strong here for the foreseeable future. Okay, good answer. Diplomatic.
2: <laughs> uh, what about one more? If we get you uh, Intel, Nvidia data center, will we see Nvidia's data center? Will there be another data center business that looks like the Intel data center business of the last
1: five years? Your guess is as good as mine on uh, on that one. I I think surely there's a lot of uh, a lot of ambition to do that type of thing, but uh, I think that let's see how it all plays out. There's a lot of there's a lot of complex uh, technology themes here that need to play out. I think in this, in this space, I think to better understand what the future looks like from a, from a landscape perspective, to see whether we really would ever see another player, like a, you know, a pervasive Intel data center play. So let's, let's stay tuned on that. Right. On that. Sounds good. All right. That's it. Daniel, do you have anything else? I think, at the- oh,
0: I think that's I, the only thing I was thinking about is we talk so much about SaaS companies, software, that end of the cloud. And so it's always, you know, what inning are we in that cloud development? But you're, you know, if you're seeing cloud compute as going up two X in the next five years, I guess that sort of answers where, you know, and obviously Ampere's thesis is around growth in cloud and growth and edge.
1: And so it seems like that, that kind of has already been answered through the course of this conversation. Mhm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think you know the edge space is one to keep an eye on because that's still pretty nascent. Where where exactly the the edge ends up sitting, who owns it, you know, there's a lot up in the air right now and that's going to be a really exciting space and you know one that we're really well positioned to win from a hardware perspective and I think the growth in edge will will far exceed the growth in cloud over the next couple of years since it's coming off such a small base but is is hugely important to enable the type of applications and ubiquitous compute that people are looking to see here over the next couple of years.
2: All right. What about uh, one last thing? Arm NVIDIA,
1: or do you plead the fifth? I'll plead the fifth on that <laughs> one. Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't comment on what's going on on there. You guys might have better insight than I do about where things are headed. All right.
0: All right. Great, Jeff. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time today and uh, really appreciate you sharing your insights and best of luck with Ampere in this exciting time.
1: Absolutely. This is a ton of fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks. That was great.
0: Thank you for listening to The Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, or anything else. We aim to publish this every Tuesday morning and love to hear from you. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really be grateful as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Shortman Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by Soquel. Thank you for listening and see you next week.